Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. In other words, if disaster came, the ancients reasoned, God not only knew about it, he holds the world in his hand and for some morally good reason, he's not only allowed it, he has ordained that it is good for some purpose that we may not understand. When we hit a rough patch in life, it's a good idea to do a bit of self-assessment, examine our behaviours, test them if you like. It may be that we need to make some changes, that our rough patch is because we've made mistakes. It's not an easy process, but one which God's grace is most necessary for. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in Lamentations. His message, The Examined and Tested Life, returns. We're continuing in Lamentations, and, and I have two hopes. Firstly, I want to appeal to those who perhaps feel that there's no more light at the end of the tunnel, and I want to talk to others who will this week meet people who feel there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Firstly, I want to pray. Father, it's not for ourselves that you have saved us. It's for you. Father, it's not so that people themselves can be rescued for, from, as, as Tony said, a, a lost eternity, but it's so that people can come into the joy for eternity of knowing you and not only knowing you, having their sins forgiven, being adopted and having what for many won't just be a second chance, but it'll be put a big number on it, chance. And God, you're so merciful when you do that. And today there could be people here who feel they've strayed. They, they may feel unworthy. They may feel that they've done so much that you could never forgive them or accept them. And I pray for these, not because we want to say anything other than what you have already said. And I pray, Lord, that you'd also, as a result of today, raise up more Jeremiah's. And I pray for this, that your Holy Spirit might minister the word and use me as a vehicle. In Jesus' name, amen. So the utter devastation of that city that Jeremiah had ministered in, man, must have been a shock. I think we, The closest thing I've ever been to an experience like that was when I went to Christchurch and we couldn't get into the city. It was just shortly after the earthquake and they had the whole city cyclone fenced off. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen and a whole part of that city can never be rebuilt and Jerusalem destroyed. I think it's been destroyed something like 22 times throughout its history just by the way. Here's this account of Jeremiah which happened which he wrote after that. Shortly after that there was nowhere left in the city. Every dwelling had been destroyed and, he, and, and uh, tradition says that he went outside the city, went to a cave for shelter and wrote this amazing poem. Five chapters, each verse starts with the first letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, chapter three, where we're going to be looking now, is the Hebrew alphabet times three. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and this one um, you'll see has 66. So this is out of the book of Lamentations. We're going to be having a look in chapter three. It's titled... The Examined and Tested Life Returns. And this is something that I hope you can, you can see that even in the midst of the, the disaster that has happened, Jeremiah is calling, still calling for Israel to worship and trust God. I, I don't know that that's what I would have been doing. I think I would have been going around saying, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen, but you didn't listen. There's none of that with Jeremiah. 
incredibly impressive that this young man who started prophesying probably from the age of 12 or 13 years of age prophesied the downfall of kings, just, not just his own but those in surrounding nations, saw it all fulfilled, saw the very thing that he hoped wouldn't happen, happen, that was the destruction of his city by invaders from, as it's called, the north. And here he is. We're going to pick it up in verse 37. And this is what he says. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? And that's one of the tests of prophecy. That when God speaks, the test is, if it's a prediction about the future, if it's God, it, it'll happen. If it doesn't happen, it wasn't God. But we need to test prophecies. If, as we see here, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord had commanded it. They had been warned and warned and warned, not, not for days, weeks, months, but not just for years, not for decades, but for centuries. You can't look at this story in Scripture and go, God is not patient. Added to that, God had a special, a very special covenant with Israel that he doesn't have with us. He has a new covenant with us, which we'll explore in a moment. So they had a very special responsibility to represent the light of God to the world, and they had misrepresented him. All right, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. Can I just make a point about that? And it's this. I once had a conversation with a Muslim online. And, the, uh, and uh, I think for the Christian, we have a, a very quick, very easy case to make that the Quran is clearly not divinely inspired. And we can do that very quickly. Apart from the fact that there were, within about 100 years after the Quran was supposedly published, there were about 22 or so different versions of it, radically different versions of it. And it was, if I get the name wrong, it was a caliphate in uh, northern Egypt that, that got all of these different copies and burned them and made sure there was only one copy. Now, that, that's a huge problem for Islam, especially, I think, recently there's been some talk that some of these different diverse copies have been found and they're, they're markedly different. You know, that's not the, the case with the Bible. For all the criticism the Bible's had, there's some 5,600 ancient manuscripts that date back to the now the 1st century, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, which are utterly reliable. And the amazing thing is that they all correspond with the exception of punctuation and minor scribal spelling transmissions. They all correspond exactly with what you are holding in your hands today. It's amazing. We have nothing to fear about anyone saying, accusing us of having a Bible that's been changed. We, we have a couple of things, and this is the, the Muslim's response to me, was your Bible co is contradictory. It contradicts itself. Because, for example, in 2 Samuel, it says that God moved David to number the people. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says, And Satan moved David to number the people. And this Muslim who was engaging with me said, See, your Bible contradicts itself. Was it God or was it Satan? Big difference. See, your Bible is unreliable. There's quite a few of these things that happen in Scripture like this. And it comes back to understanding a verse like this. 
It is from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. And so we understand this, that the ancients, the, the, the most ancient records in Scripture, attributed everything, good and bad, as ultimately coming from either the direct or the permissive will of God. In other words, if disaster came, the ancients reasoned, God not only knew about it, he holds the world in his hand. And for some morally good reason, he's not only allowed it, he has ordained that it is good for some purpose that we may not understand. How does he then carry out this evil, this, what appears to us to be evil? We have an insight in the, the records of the kings where we have a prophet going to a king of Israel and, uh, sorry, a, a southern king going to the northern king of Israel and saying, don't you have a prophet of the Lord here? You might remember the story. Amaziah was the, was the prophet. And the, I think it was Ahab said to, I think it was Hezekiah or Jehoshaphat, yes, I do. There is a true prophet of the Lord because all of the other prophets were saying, go in a battle, you'll win, you'll get victory. And Amaziah, the, Ahab says of Amaziah, yeah, there is a true prophet of the Lord here, but I don't like him because he never says anything nice. <laughs> and Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah, I think it might have been Jehoshaphat, he, he says, well, can I at least hear what he has to say? And Amaziah comes in because he's been imprisoned by Ahab because he never says anything nice. And he comes in and he, he says, go in the battle, you'll have the victory. And Ahab says, see, now he's mocking my prophets because he was, he was being sarcastic. Sarcasm is in the Bible. It's, it's there. It's not a license to be sarcastic, by the way. See me after. And, and Jehoshaphat says, what is the word of the Lord? And Amaziah says this, I saw the Lord ask the question, who can I send to deceive the prophets of Baal? Who can I send to deceive them? And it says, this demon came forward and said, I will go and I will put a lie in the mouth of these prophets. And the Lord said, go. That's an amazing insight. God is orchestrating something and he is in his amazing sovereignty using the forces of evil to somehow accomplish good. Now, I know this might be confusing for people, but, but I hope for us it results in this. Do we trust God? Do we trust him? Do we trust him that when bad happens, from our perspective, he has a morally good reason for it? I'm going to suggest to you, because the, the previous verses in this Lamentations period, there's three verses that, that all talk about different kinds of good. It is good to seek the Lord. It is good to wait on the Lord. It is good to... And, and God is always good. He's always good. And so the response that I had to this Muslim is, yes, God even is Lord of Satan. In other words, he is sovereign over Satan. And some people have this concept... That it's yin and yang, it's, it's God versus Satan and, and eventually one of them's going to win. Can I tell you, that is not Christianity, it is not biblical, it, there, is no, there is no contest. The war has been won, Satan has been defeated. And, and I, I love this, this, if you can get this picture, that even when the devil throws his worst at God's plan, God says, thank you, I was waiting for you to do that. I knew you were going to do that. And now I've got this incredible plan worked out to use that for my glory and great good. And ultimately, we read in Acts 4, I think it is, where it says, Herod and Pilate schemed together to do great evil by putting to death the Son of God. 
Can you see how this works? His satanic orchestrated evil that the devil himself didn't even realize was a part of God's plan to bring salvation to the world. So who moved David to number the people? Well, Satan did, and God, in his sovereignty, ordained it to happen. Because ultimately, if you follow that through, David went and bought the threshing floor of, uh, of Arona. You know what that threshing floor became? The temple precinct. God had his way. God had his way. So, verse 39. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? I want to just I want to unpack this a little bit because I hear people say things like this. How could a good loving God send anyone to hell? How is that fair? I actually googled the the response quote to that. And I couldn't find who said it, but it was I did hear someone say and because I can't find it, quote me, put my name at the bottom of this now, because I, I, I tried in good faith for three seconds to find out who actually did say it. He said this, I, I have no problem with God sending anyone to hell. I perfectly get that. I don't understand why he would allow anyone into heaven. You ever thought of it that way? So here's, here's this thing that we all, we all think we deserve more and we all think we're better than we actually are. <laughs> well, God will send you to hell because, well, you're you. But he'd be missing out big time if he didn't let me into heaven. You hear the arrogance in that? And yet, we, as Jeremiah said, the people were complaining about what had happened. Complaining about the punishment for their sins that had happened at the hands of the Babylonians. So I want to take this opportunity just to talk about three little known facts that you may not know about God's grace. Now I'm telling you this not because I think you don't know it but because I think between now and pretty soon if you're engaging with someone about Christianity and God and religion and the Bible this issue will come up. How could God send anyone to hell? How's that fair? And you might say well God, God actually uh, has reached out and saved some. And they go well what about the rest? Why didn't he save them? And here's Three facts, three quick facts that I think we all need to know about grace. Because I have heard some of the most um, uh, faulty ideas about how God ministers grace. For example, um, uh, you know, we, we need God's grace and if we'll just worship just for a little bit longer, we can have it. Anyone hear what's wrong with that thinking? You see, let me define grace for a start. Grace is... The technical term, God's unmerited favour. That sounds flowery. I've had people say, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Put simply, God is, grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. And even that doesn't really cover it. Because it's not just giving us something. It's giving us everything. We become joint heirs with Christ. We get Christ's passport. It means on the day that we stand for our judgment before the, the throne of God outside the gate of heaven, to use this picture. And God says, why should I let you into heaven? All you have to do is go point to Jesus and say, ask him. Ask him. I'm trusting. I'm with him. Ask him what he's done that's good enough. Because it's nothing to do with me. He has given me all the merit of his goodness. That's the grace in which we stand. Can I tell you, 
why I think this is super important to settle right now, and it's this. This week, I've had several trips to the hospital, not for me, but for someone who has maybe a week or so to live. And when I was a young pastor, I would go and I would be with people who were dying, and I would just do most of the listening. Because honestly, I just didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And since that time over the last uh, 20-something, uh, nearly 30 years in ministry now, I've learnt a few things, which you would hope. Thank you. And I now, now because you, you end up with an accumulating picture here that sometimes even the, the people who look like, and you could see them in this room today, people who look like the I've got it all together Christians face a moment of crisis, which could be, I'm about to leave this life and go into the next, and all these doubts enter their mind and their heart. So I think it's really important to settle this before you get there. So what I was sharing with this one who is in palliative care, and there's no misunderstanding, we're very clear what's happening here, was to say, and, and I, I used my Bible, I actually grabbed my Bible and I, I said, I just want to remind you of what Christ has done for you. You have put your faith and trust in Christ, and I pulled out a bit of paper that I had, and, and I said, imagine this is your rap sheet. This is everything you've done wrong. These are all the reasons why you deserve hell. Imagine this is Jesus. Jesus has taken all of that, all your guilt, all your shame, and he's paid the price. Now when God looks at you, all he sees is Jesus. It's got nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with Jesus. That's grace. So here's three facts about grace that I think are really, really important to understand and are generally not understood. Number one, only some receive it. You know what we would call it if everyone received it? Wages a right, but not grace. Imagine a scenario where there's a thousand people on that kind of houseboat and they're about to hurtle over a cliff to certain death and God in his sovereignty, pitch dark at night, no lights on, complete loss of power, God somehow came and he took one person out of that 1,000 people on that houseboat and set them on the safe side, not the rabid monkey side, the safe side of the shore. And the rest of them hurtled over the cliff to a, to a certain death. Has God done anything unfair to those people? Has God done anything unfair to that person? Absolutely. He's shown them grace. Can you see that grace is actually fundamentally unfair? We used to drop our kids off when they were little at school and say, make sure you, are un you treat someone today unfairly. Don't be fair. Give them something they don't deserve. Be nice to them. Be kind to them. Be unfair to them. By God taking that one person out and rescuing them, they didn't deserve it, and he's done something to them that didn't equate to fair. Fair was gravity. So he's done something unfair. Can you see that by God saving you, he's done something unfair positively for you? I'm amazed that you can stay seated. I'm amazed that you don't drop to your knees and go, God, I've never seen like that. Thank you. God, thank you. Because if we all got what we deserved, it wouldn't be pretty, would it? And he's done something we don't deserve. So only some receive it. That's what makes it grace. Now, the heart of God is so big that if everyone, everyone turned to him, they would receive it. But the hardness of their heart is that they don't. I was reminded this week at our home group meeting when, when Mike 
reminded me that C.S. Lewis paints a picture of the eternal state as one place, but everyone goes there, and those who have a hard heart live for eternity with their hard heart. And for them, that place, which we would call heaven, is hell, because it's with God, and God always tells them what to do. And God's always God, and I want to be God. And C.S. Lewis says that these people will take their hard heart that refuse to turn to God in this life with them into eternity and forever. They will be in torment because they will never have their own way. Hmm. C.S. Lewis responded once, there will be those who say to God, thy will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, thy will be done. You want a hard heart? You can have it for eternity. And that will be their torment. Only some receive it. That's the first thing about grace. Second thing about grace, big, big concepts. It necessitates election. In other words, election is simply choosing. Election is, I choose you. It necessitates that. Because if God says, well, you, you've all got it, that's not grace. Grace is giving something to someone they don't deserve. So if he says, I'm going to show favour to Wendy but not Mark, is he doing anything unfair to Mark? No, Mark is a sinner, a dirty, rotten sinner. I could tell you stuff too, by the way. You'd <laughs> confirm it. But he, sh- he's, he said, I'm going to save Wendy. Now, the question is, but why doesn't he save Mark? Well, that one, you'll have to wait till you get to heaven. Those, all those why questions, you have to wait. But right now, we just know that Scripture says that he appoints. And you can see this in Acts chapter 14, verse 37 or 30, 37, I think it is, where it says, To as many as were appointed to eternal life received Christ. Now, we look at that and go, well, why doesn't he appoint everybody? That's a why question. I told you about why questions. That's not in this lifetime. That's the next lifetime. The third thing about grace is it actually enables people to repent. Now, heres I've heard people say this. If you will repent, you can have God's grace. Can you see the problem with that? You see, if you do D-O something so that God can only then give you something, That's not grace. It enables sinners to repent. This is why we need to be very, very careful in how we treat everybody. But can I tell you, sometimes something is going on in people's lives that the ridicule from Christians in the process just doesn't help. Just be mindful of that, please. So grace enables people to repent. So you might be here today and think, oh, yeah. You have no idea what I've done. I've stolen cars. I've got, I get drunk all the time. I've, done, I've put stuff into my body. I've done stuff my parents don't know about. I've done stuff to people. I've been doing stuff to girls. I've been doing stuff. Man, I am, I am beyond salvation. Can I tell you, think like that. That right there tells me the grace of God is already working in your life. If you know it's wrong, And you begin to feel it. Conviction of sin is one of the kindest things God does in a human heart. It enables sinners to repent. And you'll see expressions like, to them he gave the gift of repentance, mentioned also in the book of Acts. See, even at this point in in the the story of Jerusalem and, and Israel, the history of Israel, Jeremiah, we're about to see, was still urging people to repent. Now, under the old covenant, they just had to muster it up. But in the new covenant, God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do what we cannot do in ourselves. Wow. And here we have it. Verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. 
And that's the essence of repentance. Test, examine, and return. So what is repentance? It's interesting that the, the very first word that came publicly out of the mouth of John the Baptist was the word repent. When Jesus began his ministry, the very first word that came out of his mouth publicly was the word repent. When the disciples preached on the day of Pentecost, they preached a message of repent. You cannot take this concept of repentance and the gospel, the Christian message that, that, that is the only means by which someone can receive Christ. You can't separate them. It's, it's embedded in it. So how do we define repentance? It is a change of heart and mind. A change of heart and mind. And there is something that happens when your heart and mind change. See, you can as much change your own mind and change your own heart as a dead person can will themselves back to life. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 1 to 5 says this, We who were dead in trespasses and sins have now been made, anyone know the next word? Alive in Christ Jesus. We who were dead, not like we were bobbing down in the ocean about to die, not like we'd gone down and we were still sinking just by the surface. If you get us, you can pump that water out and just resuscitate us. We're, we're, we're nearly dead. Our vitals are still there. We're just not breathing. No, dead. No brainwave activity spiritually. No heart wave activity spiritually. No pulse. No life. Nothing. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, have now been made alive in Christ. You see why salvation is a miracle. Revelation chapter 20 calls your salvation the first resurrection. And it says this, those who, who are a part of the first resurrection over them, the second death has no power because the second death is eternal damnation. So we need a gift from God. And this is what the prophet Ezekiel said would happen. Because you have this thing where well, you can't, a dead person can't will themselves back to life. A spiritually dead person can't will that they change their heart or their mind. So how on earth do we do the impossible? And here's what Ezekiel said would happen under the new covenant. And I will give them one heart and a, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And it's spiritual language for I will give them a heart. I will give them a heart. And what is that heart? It's kind of like the heart of David. A heart that says, God, I want to know you. God, I want to be with you. God, I want to please you. God, I want to do your will. God, I, want to, I just want to be your child and walk in a way that the world knows that I'm your child. That's a heart after God. Ezekiel 18.31 says this, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Will you die, O house of Israel? And they still rejected Ezekiel's message. Jeremiah had already said to them in Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. This is the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's your new heart. There's your new mind. Christ does it.
A change of heart, a change of mind results in a change of ways. Jeremiah goes on and tells the people of Jerusalem, lift up, even at this point, lift up your hearts and hands to God in heaven. Can I tell you this is the process of repentance? Number one, it involves looking to God. And can I tell you, it's already God working in you that enables you to do this. What does it mean to look to God? It just simply means this, God. <laughs> Sometimes that might be it. God, 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 I need you. I need your help. Number two, we read Jeremiah telling them in verse 42, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. So number two, we have transgressed and rebelled. What does repentance involve? It involves confession of guilt, acknowledgement of guilt. Confess to God that you've blown it. Tell him what you've done. You don't need to talk to a man on the other side of a grid in a little black box what you've done. You can tell God directly. Confess to God. Jeremiah goes on in verse 50 of chapter 3 and he says this, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. And what is this? What is he telling them to do? Appeal to God. Appeal to God. Do you need to examine your life, repent and with God's grace return? More from Dr. Corbett next week podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, The Examined and Tested Life Returns, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.